you have your Bibles, please open to Judges chapter 10. Before we start, I'd like to open our time with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your word and just this constant reminder of our desperate need of your grace. Lord, um, as we look into your word, again, um, give us a soft heart to your word. Um, We look at these different chapters and episodes and characters, and it's so easy to think that we're super disconnected from them. We are more like them than we would like to admit, and I pray, Lord, that you can humble our hearts and allow us to fight compromise, resist temptation, and to live faithfully before you. Lord, if there are any sins in our life that is creeping in, uh, slowly corroding our love for you, may you reveal those things to us so that we can cut those things off uh, in hopes that we can just grow in our affections for you. Lord, we know that sin is destructive, and sin causes us to do things that are offensive to you, but you are a merciful and good God. Be with us this evening. Give us attentiveness to your word, and um, pray these things in your son's name. Amen. In systematic theology, there's a term that is used to describe how man and God relate to one another, in that there are certain things about God that, that we can identify with. We call these the communicable attributes of God. Uh, basically, it just means that because we're made in the image of God, the imago Dei, as these seminary nerds would say, uh, there are certain attributes of a God that we have, certain things about God that, that, we, um, that we demonstrate. Uh, for example, there are things like God is kind, and, and we demonstrate that kindness. Uh, God is patient, and we demonstrate those patience as well. There's the opposite. There's an there's the opposite that's also true, the incommunicable attributes, which means that there are certain attributes that God has that we'll never be able to have. For example, uh, God, we are present here in the moments, but we're not omnipresent. Uh, there are things uh, that we know, but we're not omniscient. Uh, there are certain abilities that we have, but we're not on, omnipotent. There are things about God that is, makes him distinct from humanity, but there are also certain things that we share. Another thing that we share with God is, is our emotions. God is often described as a God of anger, and we have anger, but oftentimes our anger is, is, is filled with sin, is not perfect the way that God's anger is perfect. We feel love. God is described as love. Of course, he is infinitely greater than the love that we show to other people. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we experience patience, but again, it's a lesser degree to, to the patience of God. There are a handful of attributes that, are, that we have that is similar to God, which allows us to relate to God, allows us to understand God more. He is distinct, but he's also relatable. He is far, but he's also close. And a lot of scripture, especially where we're studying narrative passages or um, throughout the scripture, when we see these attributes of God, oftentimes they argue from the greater to the less. It, if God can do it for you, if he can show, if he can demonstrate patience towards Israel, then he can be patient towards you. If God shows mercy towards these wicked people who can do all these atrocities, then he can do it for you as well. As we look at these attributes of God, it must cause us to see how great our God is, which in turn must cause us to worship and devote our life to obedience to him by the way we live out our lives with those before us. 
the clearer God's picture and his attribute is in your mind, the more you will see how far you are from his perfect attributes, which, w- which should humble you to ask God for grace to put off the old self and put on the new self. We're called in Scripture to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. So how can we do this? We look at his attributes. If God can display his character to this wicked nation of Israel, to all these fallen sinners, then you and I must be willing to display the same attributes to those, ar- <clears throat> to those around us. Uh, as I said, we are in the book of Judges. This is a really dark book in the life of Israel. Uh, in the end of Joshua, the book before this, they, they end in such seemingly good terms. They said that, uh, Joshua said that, me and my household, we will worship God, and Israel said, we will do it too. Uh, but in a really prophetic sense, Joshua said, no, you would not. You, know, you won't really follow God. And this whole book shows how they failed to keep that promise. Over and over again, they have failed to submit and worship God. They hoard themselves after other idols. They gave them up to idolatry, and the Lord afflicted them. The Lord raised up different nations to punish them, to turn their hearts back to him. And these all, every time when their hearts are turned to another idol, these idols are the ones that afflict them. Last week we learned about Abimelech, how there was a civil war that broke out because of his murder, murderous type rage. And at the very end, it seems like there is no hope, but there is always hope when you are with God. God shows these certain attributes of Israel. And I wonder if this is something that we show towards other people. These attributes of God are not really a suggestion for us. These are what God expects of us. If we want to be followers of Christ faithfully, then we must display these attributes as well. So this evening, we're going to look at four communicable attributes of God that will cause us to learn more about God so we can be more like him. Four attributes of God that shows us who he is so that we can be more like him. The first attribute is that God's grace after sin. We'll see four headings. The first one will be God's grace after sin. Now let's start by defining some terms. Grace is God giving you something that you do not deserve. Imagine you did, you did something wrong, and instead of God destroying you, he actively showered you with something that you do not deserve. This is what I mean by grace. God giving you something that you do not deserve. We begin chapter 10, verse 1, with these two what people often call them minor judges. There isn't much... The reason why they're minor is not because they're like smaller in height uh, or that they're not significant. Rather, there just isn't that much information about them. But there is still, even though only five verses talking about these two minor judges, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn about our God. Gideon then uh, took up four chapters in the last book, and then these two minor judges take up five verses. And these two minor judges, this entire chapter is a prelude to a judge that we will say next we call Jethav. Although there isn't much written about them, they function similar to the rest of the judges. They were called to be like protectors, almost like warlords, if you were to use those terms. But their, their role is to protect Israel and to teach them about God. Notice verse 1 and 2. Now after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar arose to save Israel. He lived in Shemar in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years. 
Then he died and was buried in Shemir. Notice that this is after Abimelech's death. This is a unique transition from one story to another. The fact that this verse is here actually shows us how gracious our God is. Time and time again, God has revealed himself to, to show how gracious he is in light of their folly and their sin. Exodus 34, verse 6. The, then the Lord passed by in front of them, him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Remember how the last chapter ended, that Abimelech, after they were having this little civil war, he wanted to burn the people of Shechem down. And then this lady, who happened to have the stone, cast over this, this little tower and it landed on Abimelech's head. He was saying he, how he didn't want to be remembered by this, but of course we, we laugh because it's in Scripture. We, we all remember him by the fact that he was killed by this random lady. But the reason why Abimelech was to become, became their king over Israel is because the Israelites were wicked in their own hearts, and they chose someone that matched their desire. The fact that there is a chapter 10 the fact that there is a scene, these verses, these words, now after Abimelech, shows us God's grace, that God is not finished with Israel. If God eliminated all of Israel, if the entire Old Testament ended with chapter 9, verse 57, it would have been perfectly just. But there is a next chapter, there is a next verse. And this shows us that God is indeed gracious. God is gracious to them. He gives them a new chapter, and then he is also gracious to you and I. Some of us have lived lives filled with sin. We have a history of a pattern of sin. We were enslaved to sin, but by God's grace, he gives us a new day. We were told over and over again how God shows us new mercies every morning. And this is our God. He does not let us go. He gives us time and time again to turn from our sins and place our trust in him. This is what's going on here. God is gracious. He allows the Israelites to continue existing. And he does so by raising up some, a new judge. His name is Tola. Tola is, the, is only mentioned here in the entire scripture. Not much is known about him. Aside from that, that he is a son of Dodo, which is Unfortunate, so sad name. He's considered a minor judge. He judged Israel for 23 years, and they buried him at a place called Shamir. Tola saved Israel, but not in the same way as Abimelech. If anything, Tola rescued Israelites from the fallout of Abimelech's death. God raised him up to fix Israel, and because of him, there is some stability. God is gracious enough to bring someone to fix Israel, and no matter how far off the hinges the Israelites got to, God was always gracious enough to rescue them. And if God is willing to be gracious to a nation for their stupidity and their sin, then God will be gracious towards you and your sin. And if God is willing to show you grace to you and your sin, then you must be willing to show grace to other people. You, we hear about the, I mean, we were familiar with this concept, right? In the New Testament, there was the two slaves, the people, the, the first slave who had a, a tremendous amount of debt, and he chose, he begged for mercy, and that person let him go, but that slave had someone else that, that owed him a little bit. And he demanded that the second slave pay him back in full. 
This is the same way. This, the reason why the second slave was considered wicked is because he, didn't, he forgot how much grace he was shown. In the same way, if you understand how much grace is shown to you, you must be gracious to those in your life. I wonder if you have anyone in your life that has hurt you in some way, and yet you responded according to their, to their offense against you. If someone spoke, spoke to you poorly, and you know you do not deserve that comment, so instead of showing them grace, you choose to defend your honor and your name. You raise your voice, you speak harshly, and you let this other person have it. That's not justice, it's vengeance. You have returned to that other person what you think that person rightfully deserves. Or picture another scenario. Let's say you are driving a car and someone hits you, and then they ask you for mercy. Showing mercy would mean that you withhold payment. You say, okay, we'll let that go. But grace goes beyond that. Grace goes, if you get hit by, if you in a car accident, you say, oh, you don't have to pay for it. In fact, let me pay for the damages for both of our cars. That's the type of love that God has for us. God didn't just show us mercy by withholding his judgments. He's gracious by giving us his son. He gave us an ability and a, and to, to, be, to say no to sin. He gave us the right to be joint heirs with him in heaven. God does more than just withhold. He gives us grace. Mercy withholds while grace gives. And look at whatever offense someone has done to you, and then imagine how God feels every single time you've sinned against him. Imagine what it's like to be in God's position. God created you. He knit you in the womb. And every single moment you sin, you sin without any remorse against the Lord. But yet, every time we sin and God is offended, he exercises grace towards us. God goes beyond give, hold, give, showing us grace, but he gives uh, mercy, but he also shows us grace. He does so so that we can be made right with him. He withholds what you deserve and gives you what you don't deserve. And this is what God is like to us, and this is what we need to be with those in our lives. The worst thing that you can do, and a side note, the worst thing you can do when it comes to your own sin is to assume that my sin is so great, and therefore I just need to give up Christianity altogether. That's the worst thing that you can do. You must realize that no matter how bad your sin is, God's grace is so much more. God's grace will always be greater than the sin that you commit, Yes, your sin is great, but God's grace is greater. Once you begin to understand how much grace is shown to you, then you will extend that grace to those in your life who has wronged you. If God is willing to show you so much grace, then who are you not to grant grace to those who offended you? The only way you can show the shred of grace is when you understand the massive wealth of grace that is shown to you. And that's what we see in these first two verses. The fact that these Israelites are still around is because God is gracious. God didn't, wasn't just merciful in withholding his judgment, but he provided this judge, this minor judge, and gave them peace for 23 years. My challenge to you is that when next time someone offends you, that you demonstrate not just mercy, but grace as well. That you don't return, uh, when people say some bad things to you, that you return with a blessing. That when someone asks demands of you, that you just give to them. You always show them grace. And we do this because our God is a gracious God. God is not only gracious, but God is also patient towards us. Our second point is God is patient towards shortcomings. Uh, verse 3 to 5. 
Look at verse 3. After him, Jair the Gilead arose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havar-Jar to this day. And Jar died and was buried in Kaman. Jair, the Gilead, prepares the way for the story. Jethub, the Gilead, there's the same line. And Jair judged Israel for 22 years. If you were to add Tola and this individual, there would be 45 years of peace. That after the Abimelech, the dark time of Abimelech, there's this little, little, little time of peace that lasted about 45 years. But you'll notice that Jair had these, these descriptions about him. He had 30 sons, he had 30 donkeys, he had 30 cities. This just means that there's this time in Israel where there are actually some amount of wealth, that there's a level of comfort. They were a wealthy group of people, 30 sons, 30 donkeys, and we don't need to read into what's so special about the donkey. It's just animals that they have. They have 30 sons and 30 cities. It's unknown, and I think it's just implied that there's probably more than just 30 sons. and uh, He probably had maybe daughters as well. But one thing you have to realize is that he probably did not have 30 sons from one wife. He probably had multiple wives. Remember that in the Old Testament always just shows us how wicked people can be. Just because these people are doing these type of things does not give us permission to go and do likewise. Jared had multiple wives, and you must realize that this is already a breach of God's covenant. Genesis speaks uh, that men and women are supposed to be one flesh and not be shared with others. And this second minor judge, although he judged and watched over Israel, he lived a life of compromise. Like Gideon before, they have failed to obey the basic commands of God. But what we do see is that God is indeed patient during this entire time. If you continue reading through First and Second Kings, you'll see a list of all of these different kings that they'll say he, he did right in all of these areas except for this one area. And then there will be a next king that he did right in all these other areas, and then there's, he, he failed in this one little area. When I see these type of passages, I think that our God is indeed a very patient God. Our God is willing to, 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 to even though we, these people probably know God's word, and they, in their own sin, gave into it, God is still patient. There's this, there seems to be a time of blessing, and it's often during this time of blessing and prosperity that our God that we guard our sanctification the least. Remember, this is a time when there was a tremendous amount of wealth, and it's that tremendous amount of wealth that caused them to, to, to live a life of compromise. The most difficult times in the life of a believer in terms of growing and devoting your life to the Lord is actually not during the times of difficulty, but during time of great prosperity. It's during those times of prosperity that really requires you to make time to pray to read God's word and devote your life to living out God's word. Oftentimes for Christians during hard times, we pray more faithfully, we read more faithfully, we devote our life to the more, more consistently. But during the times of leisure and during times of peace, we tend to forget the basic commands of God because those threats aren't immediate. Yet God is still patient towards you and I during those moments when it is times of peace and we fail to obey God. God, in his grace, is giving us time to reflect upon the many blessings that he's given us, and it should lead us to increase faithfulness. But sadly, times of peace sometimes produce in our lives a pattern of apathy. 
This does not mean that a person can go and live in sin. It does mean that God is patient towards you, so you need to repent. This is what Romans 2.4, that the patience and tolerance of God is what leads you to repentance. Understand that your shortcoming or even moments where you fall into sin or toy with sin and not feel the immediate consequences of it does not mean that God does not notice, but rather he is tremendously patient towards you. Therefore, again, we see that God is patient towards us. We must be patient to other people. Colossians 3.12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I am sure if you lived in this world long enough that you have someone in your life that bothered you a lot, that bugged you, that just constantly just get on your nerves. And this person makes the same mistakes over and over and over again. And no matter how many times you tell them to stop, they seem to mess up over and over and over and over again. The type of feeling of resisting and that that burning anger that you have, that's actually how God feels towards every single one of your sin. And his emotions is far greater than the emotion you have towards those around you. But yet God is patient towards you. When you are passive in your walk with Christ, that offends God because you're not devoting your heart fully with your heart, mind, and soul. That's called apathy. Apathy is actually a sin. It's just a, a cover word that we use to describe backsliding or, or, or our hearts being turned away to love something else. But yet in your apathy, God is still patient. Just because God is patient towards you and your sin, that does not mean that God does not hate your sin. If God is patient towards you in your own sin, then why are you not patient towards others in their shortcoming? His patience should lead people to holiness, but we will see that people who, that they, that they neglected those opportunities to repent and it brought them to a state of compromise once more. Again, as Christians, we need to be patient towards those around us. This is because God is patient towards us. So when someone hurts your feelings or, 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 or slow at a task, and, you're like, well, and, you, and you feel that urge to just make them just, just finish or repent or whatever, understand there's a lot of pe- that God has shown you a lot more patient than you to whoever this individual is, whether it's your sibling or your spouse or your coworker or your classmates. No matter how much they get on your nerves, you need to exercise patience because God is patient towards you. Not only is our God a God that's gracious and patient, but third, our God is God has, that is pure. Our God is pure. Uh, the third point, God's purity from sin, verse 6 to 9. Then the sons of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of the Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistine. Thus, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. This another communicable attribute is that our God is a pure God. God hates sin. The Israelites' prosperity led them to a life of sin. God cannot tolerate sin. Tolerance of sin is always offensive to God. Even though he's patient, that doesn't mean that he lets sin go. Again, we see beginning of verse 6, it should look familiar. Right? The Israelites, again, gave themselves up to other gods. 
They did this once before, and they're doing it again. And you notice that there's a list of gods from all these different nations. Israel relapsed into idolatry, and it should become familiar to you and I that are reading this. Again, this is our own life, too. There are moments we just keep falling into the same sins over and over and over again. And for those who keep falling into their sin and do not repent, their heart will become callous and the Lord will afflict them so that they can turn from their sin. Psalm 119 tells us that the psalmist said that before I was afflicted, I went away from your law. And this is what's going on here. These Israelites in their apathy led them into sin and God is going to punish them. The writer of Judges actually wrote down all of these different gods. This first pair, Baals and Asherah, these are two sexual gods that are from the Canaanites. Era uh, uh, and Sinai are from the north. Moab and Ammon are from the east. The Philistines are from the southwest. The point of this verse is to show that Israel turned to, to all of these other gods in every single direction rather than submitting and worshiping the God of Israel. Before, there was a store called Toys R Us. I don't know if you remember going to the store, but if you've ever gone to it, you'll notice that parents will always look at a kid and say, you can pick out one thing. There's a reason why they give that number to them, because without that number, they will try to get everything in the store, especially when they was going out of business. They're trying to get, the parents even compromise, like, okay, get everything. Everything's going out of business. Take them all. But you know, before that, if you ever even go to a grocery store, you see the candy aisle, you know, they always say just give, just take one thing. Because without restraints, the kids will do whatever they want. They'll try to get everything. So it is with your own idols. Your idols are never just one idol. Without restraint from God, you'll destroy your life pursuing dead idols. So what are these idols in your life? Do you realize that even though our, our idols may not be physical or even an idol that is from a foreign nation, the idols of our hearts, or anything that draws our hearts away from the loving God, offends him. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. The anger of the Lord burned against them because of their sin. God, in his just wrath, gave them over to their sin and caused them to be afflicted. God is an emotional God who reacts to the choices of his people, Anger is a faithful response to Israel's harlotry and idolatry. It is their idolatry that moves God to give them up to their sin and sell them to the other nations. A little quick foreshadow here. You notice that these are the Amorites, and uh, Jetha would deal with the Amorites, and then there's also the Philistines uh, that's listed here. Samson would be dealing with the Philistines. It's just a little, like, just putting the file in the back of your head as the, the different judges will have to deal with these, these nations. Verse 8, they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the, the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly distressed. This judgment lasted 18 years. God sold them into the hands of the nation whose God they worshipped. They were sold, which means they were given up to these four nations to do whatever these four nations please. And after some time of compromise, they find themselves once again 
full-fledged into sin. And as they continue to live in sin, God punished them for their sin. Our God is a holy God. These sins that the Israelites committed and these idols that they bowed their knees to are so offensive to God because they distort what God has established. Do you hate sin the way that God hates sin? Do you want to expose sin or do you want to cover up sin? Do you want to confront sin or do you want to celebrate it? How you view sin reflects on how you view God. You show your hatred towards sin in your life by confessing your personal sin, walking obedience, and then pointing out sins in the life of other people. Purity is what God expects from his people. When someone confronts you on your sin, our natural tendency is to overreact. We get defensive because we hate that our sin is exposed. We like the comfort of our own sin. We like the pleasure that our own sin brings. And when someone confronts us on those sins, we get offended because we lose those temporary pleasures. We actually hate people confronting our sin more than hating sin itself. And if you want to be more like your Heavenly Father, you must have the same attitude towards sin the way that God has towards sin. In our life, when, we, when people are in sin, it is the loving thing to do to point out sin. I think this is what Matthew 18 talks about when, when we confront sin, when we do church discipline. The reason why we do that is not because we don't like them, but it's because we want them to be restored back into the church. We understand the, the damaging effects of sin, and we don't want people to live that life. So as Christians, we need to be willing to confront sin. Don't think that, oh, well, someone else will deal with it. If you see sin in the life of someone in the church, you want to be willing to confront them. True love is not hiding sin. It's to help them see their sin, and not only that, but see the, the grace of God. How good our God is, how much better God is than sin. We need to have this attitude towards sin. We must hate sin. Not only is our God a God that's filled with grace, he's patient, and he's pure, but our God is also a compassionate God. The last communicable attribute of God that we as Christians must have embedded into our own lives is that we must have compassion to those who are, that are broken over their own sin. Our last point is God's compassion towards repentance. Verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you. For indeed, we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from Egypt, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? And when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. In this last section, we see God's compassion being towards broken sinners. God is more than willing to let go of his burning wrath against sinners if they truly devote their hearts in obedience. We see in the beginning of verse 10, this looks familiar as well. The people were crying out to God because God has sold them into the other nation. The same term is used throughout this whole book. Again, what they said is correct. What they said, they said they've sinned against him. And because they've forsaken God and served the Baals, what they've said is correct. They said that they have sinned solely against Yahweh. They admit their sins against God and they went to serve all these other idols. 
verse 11 and 12, God reminds them again of their repeated mistakes. They cried out for help in the past, and over and over and over again, the Lord has delivered them, and time and time again, they forget what God has done. Israel's cry is met with a very strong rebuke. God is going all out when it comes to putting, pointing out their sin. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. God reminds them that they have broken the covenant that, that God has with Israel. He tells them that they have forsaken God and have served all these other idols. <laughs> Their failure to faithfulness caused them to be forsaken by God. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. God is essentially saying to them, you worship these gods, you love them, have them save you. Go to these people that you love so much, have them deliver you. God tells them to go to their oppressors for salvation instead of going to him. God knows that their repentance is not, it's not because they're sorry over their sin, but rather they're just saying sorry for their offense. One of the things that we learned in seminary and biblical counseling is that you want to try to minimize the word sorry. Whenever there's conflict between two individuals, you want to try to get their, get their minds out of the words of saying sorry and move to the word of saying, Can, will, will you forgive me? You're asking for forgiveness, not just saying sorry. And the reason why that is because sorry implies, it can imply this kind of inconvenience. Right, like, oh, I'm sorry that I bumped into you, or I'm sorry that you were hurt. I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings, or I'm sorry that I did this and that. Whereas forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, speaks more of acknowledging wrong and wanting to be reconciled to the other person. A person can be sorry that they hurt your feelings, but not really want to be restored and have a right relationship with you. This is why saying sorry isn't as potent as asking for forgiveness. I think this is what's going on here with the Israelites and God. Their cry is not really asking for forgiveness, but wanting God to help them to help them stop from their suffering. They're going to God in hopes that they would be freed from their enslavement from the other nations. This is why God is listing out all the things that they've done so they will remember all that and all the different ways that they have failed. And why would God do this? Why would God keep bringing these things back up? It's to remind them of, the, of his past deliverance. Had it, had it not been, had, had this, these time, all these different times that God has saved that have those things been in the forefront of their own minds, they would have obeyed God. They would have cherished Yahweh. But God needed to remind them time and time again of their failures in the past so they could remember God's grace and deliverance throughout time. God is listing out the entire list of nations of oppressors from whom God saved Israel from due to their crying and their plea. God needs to remind them of their salvation. This is the same way of our this is, this is the same case even for ourselves. Sometimes we need, to be, we need to remind ourselves of what our life was like before we came to know Christ, how wicked we used to be, so that we can fully appreciate the cross. Part of t- teaching the gospel yourself every single day is to remember what you used to be, all the things that you used to do, the lifestyle that you used to have, and how you were rescued from it. And it should be noted in chapter 10, at this point, that Israel actually hasn't repented yet. They acknowledged their wrongs, but they didn't actually repent. 
Acknowledging you have wronged someone versus actually turning away from the wrongs you commit are two completely different things. You must understand that remorse doesn't always necessarily mean repentance. A person can feel bad for their sin without having any desire to change. This is what scripture calls a false repentance that leads to death. Verse 15, the sons of Israel, <coughs> the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. You know, this, this, verse, this seems like they're repentant here, right? It seems like they're broken. But I think that when you read this, this, this verse seems to imply that although, although they acknowledge their sin, they still haven't really, really repented. They're willing to accept whatever consequences the Lord wants to give them, but at least, but at the last part of this verse, you see that it seems like they're bargaining with God. Right? Only please deliver us this day. If you look at the Israelites up to this point, it would seem that Israel only cried out to God so that their pain can be removed from God. God knows that this is what's going on. Bargaining isn't repentance either. Perhaps this is some of you when it comes to Jesus. You see your life as a mess, but instead of turning from your sin, you're bargaining with God. God, I'll turn away from this and I'll stop doing this if you give me that. Lord, I will totally go to church if you provide a spouse for me. God, I will only follow you if you, give, if you stop this from happening, if you stop this trial. Or God, I will only follow you if you allow me to have this one thing. There are times when you need to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior while accepting the reality of your grim circumstances. God wants you to be a worshiper of him, and that may mean that your life is filled with suffering. But God calls you to be a worshiper of him. In the book of Job, in the beginning, this is a familiar story. We know of Job. This is a guy that, that the Lord has taken much from. In Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And remember later when, when Satan and God had this another uh, bet or uh, this little wager, then uh, the devil took away Job's health. And Job's response to that is in Job 2.10. I'll start from verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job said to her, You speak as one of foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. There are times where people will only receive God if God would promise to give them something that they want. And the Lord knows your heart. I wonder if that's some of you here today. Are you here because you want God to fill some void in your life? Or are you here because you really want to devote your life to know who God is and to live for him? Are you here because you want Jesus or you want Jesus to give you something that you want? Think deeply about this question because if your heart is not set on coming to church to know and love Jesus more, eventually you will let go of Jesus because he isn't enough to satisfy you. Jesus is all that you need. Jesus is not designed to, to resolve your, your, your petty life trials. Whatever the circumstances may be, you need to go to God to worship him, not because you want to get something from him. The Israelites' response here indicate that they will only go if God delivers them. 
So my question is, will you accept Jesus only if he gave you the desires of your own heart? Israel's problem was not that they were physically afflicted, but that they were spiritually distant. They needed to worship God with all their hearts, mind, and soul. And so do all of us. And some of you in particular need to repent of your desire of the things of this world and place your faith in God alone. God's strong rebuke work. Look at verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could not bear the misery of Israel no longer. It's only at this verse we begin to see the repentance of Israel. There's no more bargaining, no more excuses, no more reasons, no more exceptions. They seem, at least in this time, to put away their foreign gods and begin to serve God. Israel's change of heart is what moved the Lord to a change of heart as well. Or at least to to defer to God's compassion and grace. God can no longer bear the suffering of his children anymore. And this is one of those lesson learned situations. The Israelites were afflicted and were moved to walk in obedience with the Lord. This shows our merciful God. Our God is merciful to those who ask for mercy. Our God is God that shows mercy and compassion to those who acknowledge their sin and are repentant and forgives people. If God can show grace to these people that are broken over their sin, so should you and I when it comes to people in our life. God has forgiven these Israelites. God has forgiven us for our sin. And we need to forgive others for their sin as well. Sometimes in our life, we like to hold grudges against those who have sinned against us. Even long after they've asked forgiveness, we in our own hearts harvest bitterness. Right? We don't, like the relationship's not the same anymore. But even though we've asked for forgiveness, in theory, that should restore the relationship. Sometimes we like to hold on to these things because we feel that, it, that the forgiveness isn't enough. And we choose this because we're, not, we're just not as compassionate as we should be. But we see how God is gracious toward the Israelites and how merciful he is towards us that we need to be compassionate to those in our life. Look, there will be people in your life that are, that's going to offend you and they're going to hurt your feelings and they're going to ask for forgiveness. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we're not allowed to keep a list of wrongs. If we are people of God and we're followers of Jesus Christ, we need to let go of those things of the past. If you want to be a faithful and obedient child of God, you need to, you need to be willing to let things go. Because our God has let go of all of our sins. God is willing to be merciful to the sinful Israelites and people like you and I, that there's no excuse not to show mercy to those in our life. If God is patient towards the shortcomings of Israel and to sinful people like you and I, there's no exception to why we aren't patient to others in our lives. If God has hidden hatred towards sin, that Israel, uh, towards sin that Israel and even the sins that we commit, that we must be willing to hate sin just as much as our, just as much in our lives and the lives of others. If God is compassionate and, has, and shows grace to those that are broken over their sin and to people in the church, we, we must be willing to be compassionate to others that have broken, that have a broken and contrite heart over their sin. When we look at these communable attributes of God, it should make us see that we are commanded to do these things because this is who our God is. Our God is this gracious, patient, pure, and compassionate God. We who claim to be followers of God are in no position to go beyond these attributes. There are no points in your life where you don't show grace, you don't show patience, or you're not pure, or don't show any compassion. This must be who you are because this is who God is. 
as a way to transition to this little epilogue at the end. Look at verse 17 and 18. And the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This chapter ends with this request. And you'll notice that in this request, that they did not go to God. Even after all that God has done for them, even though God has just forgiven them for all their sin, all of their harlotry, they still did not go to God first. They looked around and said, which one of these men, which one of these people around us, whoever who can de- defeat this other nation, they shall rule over us. They forgot that they were supposed to have God rule over them. The time of peace is over, and they realize that there is a major problem. They do not have a military commander to, to deliver them. Israel's peacetime judge, the minor judge is gone, and now a warrior is needed, but there's no likely candidate. What is, again, sad about this closing chapter is that they fail to go to God. They fail to ask God to intervene. They fail to ask God to raise up a judge that is right before his eyes. There's no appeal to God to solve the crisis of leadership. There isn't even a reference of asking God to raise up a person to deliver them. This, once again, is a secular moment. And it's going to bring Israel back into sin as we look into chapter 11 next week through the judge known as Jephthah. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for, your <coughs> for the time that we have to study Lord, we know that you are a gracious, patient, pure, and compassionate God. We fail to do these attributes in our life, but yet you are still so kind towards us. Lord, if there is a moment in our life, I pray that you can recall some of the lessons that we've learned here, um, moments where we can show compassion, show grace, and be patient. I pray, Lord, that you could recall how you've demonstrated those things to the Israelites and to our life, and may we represent you faithfully. It's so easy to fall into sin, to forget you, and not to think about uh, your attributes. But I pray, Lord, that you can, through the working of the Holy Spirit, allow us to remember how good you are, how kind you are, and not just these attributes, but others as well. Or may these attributes that we see, just for these little, this little short chapter here, allow us to cherish you more. We desire to walk in obedience, even though our flesh sometimes uh, tempt us not to, There are things in the world that might lure us away from you, but Lord, give us grace. Give us the ability to act in obedience, um, to live faithfully, because you are a God that is worthy of all worship. Lord, we want to uh, desire you. Give us grace to do so. pray these things in your son's name. Amen.